All right, so this four-part series, Lord willing, that we'll be doing um, for the next four Sundays is on building unity and rebuilding unity. And as I mentioned in my prayer, you can kind of substitute the word unity in and out with love and fellowship. So we're talking about building love, building fellowship, or rebuilding it. And we as believers are at our wisest when we realize that there are really only two positions we are ever in in every single relationship. You are either building unity or something has happened and you are now rebuilding unity. We are at our wisest when we realize right now in this moment, that's where God has us. We are either building unity and fellowship and love or something has happened and we need to rebuild it. Just scan your relationships in your life, your your ministry team, your partnerships, your, your spouse, your relationship with your kids. Do you know which phase you are right now in with each one of them at this moment? You're either building unity or you are rebuilding unity at this moment. Now, let me give you a qualification on rebuilding unity. Rebuilding unity with somebody does not necessarily mean going back to the way things were prior to whatever happened to it. Rebuilding means pressing forward to the better expression of love, the better expression of fellowship, the better expression of unity that is most glorifying to Jesus Christ in your relationship. That's what we're talking about when we talk about rebuilding it. Um, For the last 16 months of running Finisterre and working with um, church planting teams, um, I've become convinced of the need to write a curriculum on team unity and conflict um, for those teams that we might send to Papua New Guinea. I I want, there's a ringing here still going on. Can you guys hear that? Okay. Um, I want to help church planting teams um, so that they can be successful at building their unity and rebuilding it once it's been damaged. And underneath that and behind it is a, Decades of learning to do it the wrong way. I have 32 years of marriage relationship experiences with Kim. And I have over 20 years of parenting relationship experiences with my kids. And there is so much that I wish I could go back and would have been able to learn sooner, better, and faster about building unity and rebuilding unity. In those household relationships, guys, we are either building it right now or we need to be rebuilding it. I also have over 25 years of pastoral leadership experience in the church. And for the last 16 months, as I've said, I've been counseling and training church planning teams for the mission field. And I want them to do better than I did, than I do. I want them to learn sooner and faster and better what they need to know so that team conflict doesn't obstruct their gospel mission. And I want to tell you my, the, the personal reality um, for me. The greater threat to my marriage relationship with my wife was not her cancer. But it's our conflict. That's true. And I believe for the church planning teams that we send to Papua New Guinea, their greatest threat is not a home-destroying earthquake on the Pacific Rim. It's their inability to shepherd themselves out of their own conflict. For every relationship, marriage relationship, parenting relationship, for every ministry team in the church, for the church, and sent out by the church, great wisdom and skill is needed to build unity and then especially to rebuild it when it has been damaged. 
So what I want to do is I want to paint for you a scenario this morning in our introduction. This is going to be one of the longest introductions you've ever heard from me. In fact, the whole morning's probably an introduction to this topic. But I want you to hear this scenario. I want to paint a picture for you so you can see maybe um, how fragile unity is in the way that we deal with one another. So let me paint this for you. Let's say there's a, an area of your life, it, it, it's an attitude, it's a, it's a habit, it's a pursuit, it's some desire that you have, and God sees it. And God sees that in that area of your life, you actually lack maturity. You, you lack some wisdom. Maybe you're ignorant even of that area of your life, or you've been neglecting it, or you haven't brought God's word to bear on that area of your life sufficiently yet, and he sees that. God does not think that you are the totality of that area or that arena of your life. He sees it accurately. He can see the dimensions of it. He can see the borders of it, how far it goes and how far it doesn't go. But it needs addressing from his perspective. And here is God's masterful way of commonly bringing to your attention an area. And this is where our unity then is radically affected by how well or poorly we do this. So your teammate or your partner, your friend, your spouse has seen that area or that arena of your life also, not from God's perspective, but from their limited non-God perspective. And they too believe it must be addressed. So get this, God who sees that area of your life perfectly, he moves your friend or your ministry partner who doesn't see it perfectly to come to you about it. Do you feel the suspense building even in that? First, your ministry partner coming to you is not omniscient. He can't know the dimensions He can't know the boundaries of that area or that arena of your life. He can't know the measurements of this weakness of your life or this sin in your life. He can only grant it a proportion or a weight or a measure or an importance that is certainly, listen, not complete. And probably a distortion of what it actually is. Because he's not God. But God sent him to you. And also, your ministry partner is not omnipresent. He hasn't been in every situation of your life to see how often this arena of weakness defines you or doesn't define you. The frequency of it is just beyond his view. It's beyond his presence. It's beyond his knowledge. And that guy is going to describe that arena of concern to you. And it will be incomplete at best, even perhaps a disfigurement of what it actually is in your life. And this is all that you can get from any ministry partner on this earth. That's all you can get. All you can get is a non-God, non-omniscient, non-omnipresent approach hearing what is being brought to you immediately becomes a challenge. Doesn't it? And God sent him. Add to that, your ministry partner actually feels kind of intense about it. He's passionate. She's passionate as she comes to you. 
about the distortion, about the disfigurement that he sees. And that feels to you as you're listening disproportionate. This feels unwarranted. And again, this is the only kind of servant that God can direct to you and bring an area of your life to your attention that that he wants you to see. So you get a passionate delivery of a concern that in this person's mind is actually disfigured and distorted, a distortion of what God sees. And again, there is no other kind of servant for God to employ in your sanctification than that. Kids, you have no other kind of parent to get than that who's going to misread it in your life. Parents, when your kids talk to you, there's no other kind of input you can get than that. And that's all just on the delivery side of the scenario. Let's turn the coin over and talk about it from your side, how you receive that from a very limited non-God ministry partner, non-God ministry partner. In that scenario, you almost immediately become distracted away from the arena of concern to fixate on the spectacle of the brother that is in front of you. You are increasingly being offended by him and his flaws. In fact, his flaws are just popping into your mind left and right. In fact, you feel the need to to put up a shield to defend yourself. And sadly, that arena of life that God wanted you to address is now removed and put behind that shield into an untouchable zone. And as the conversation unfolds, or maybe we should say as it unravels, it doesn't take long for you now to be compiling a list of reasons why why you don't think you have to listen to this guy at all. And then, boy, do you want to speak. And so you do. And it's so easy in that moment to turn it all back on him. How unloving. How judgmental. You're ignorant. You don't even know what you're talking about. And listen, is it true that he's ignorant? He's not God. He doesn't know everything. He's just doing what he can do. And yes, and by the way, this is what you do too. Have you noticed that? And now, as you're pushing back on what's happening, your brother who came to you, he's actually alarmed at how unteachable you are, how unapproachable you are, how dismissive you've become, how unwilling to listen you are, and he's not sure you've even heard him out. And then the meeting ends. And both of you now are in a horizontal struggle you most likely were not in prior to the meeting. You both are in a struggle to entrust yourself to each other's care. You both start setting up protective boundaries and walls against each other. And the only thing that you both have clarity on is that you don't want to be together anymore. And that you can see each other, how each other has failed miserably. That's what you can see. And both of you have lost sight of God and what he is doing if you ever saw that to begin with. And the arena of concern in your life has now been put off limits. It's not even addressable. And in that moment, you are in a disagreement that is unfortunately well positioned to become a lasting conflict. Unity, love, fellowship, 
are now fragile, if not already fractured. And as you both sit in that massive disappointment of that interaction, it is difficult for either of you to see how on earth God could possibly, how God would use somebody like this, who is so limited, who is so not like him. And as you sit in the offense of what your brother has done, it actually escapes your notice that you've done similar things just like he has done. And from my perspective, leading Finisterre, sending that kind of a team partnership into an unreached language group to plant churches is like pulling the pin on a grenade and throwing it to the tribe. By the way, disagreement and conflict are not necessarily the same thing. Do you believe that? If you believe that all disagreements are conflicts that need to be resolved, there's actually some deeper issues that probably need to be addressed in your life. Every relationship has to learn how to embrace disagreement at some level as a common feature in the relationship. Not every disagreement has to become a conflict, but almost every conflict comes out of some kind of a disagreement. And what you think about that disagreement and what you think about conflict is actually going to impact how you're going to handle that whole scenario that I painted for you. This dynamic that started out with really good intentions, one brother wanting to love another brother, that went so wrong so easily, it happens far more often than it needs to happen. Unity, guys, is easily lost and it is very difficult to rebuild. And love grows cold so fast. And the spark that is needed to rekindle the embers of love, it just blows away with the wind so easily. Fellowship fractures into countless pieces on the floor. And where do you even start to glue it all back together? And listen, God wants to use this very dynamic in your life more than you ever want to know. There's so much hope if we can just look past ourselves to see God. So in light of that scenario, I want you to just think, how, how, how should you approach your brother with your concern about him? And, and, and how should you prepare the path for your brother who's coming to you with concerns? What should you remember about him as you meet? What should he remember about you while you meet? And what must both of you remember about God while you meet together? How should you listen to your non-omniscient, limited, sometimes power-hungry, non-God teammate? How should Do you have to listen to him? You have to. What do you do when the meeting doesn't go so well? Where does that leave you? What should you both do? Are are you in Matthew 18 now? Because he did not listen? How do you end a meeting held by two limited non-God brothers who both can't see each other completely and who are struggling to see what God is doing? Now, so far, what I painted for you is very discouraging. And far too often when I look in the mirror, this is exactly what I see. But I want you to be encouraged by this. Think on this with me. If this is God's way to help you become aware of a weakness, to become aware of an area of needed sanctification, but at the same time, it is also can very uh, become a threat to your unity, do you know what that means about your relationships with each other? 
it means that they are conflict hardy. It means that God built them and designed them to survive that disaster because we do it with each other all the time. And we have to be able to overcome. He is at work in that process. We just too easily lose sight of him because we both block each other's view of him. So let's put our eyes on Jesus Christ this morning and let's be merciful to one another as we love each other. But let's move and talk first this morning about the impressive ability of Jesus to perfectly assess every human interaction before him. Okay? So in the remaining time, I want us to put our eyes on Jesus Christ this morning. You know he had a ministry team uh, populated by knuckleheads, just like our ministry teams, right? Full of flaws. And he interacted every day with thousands upon thousands of people pressing in on him. And in every interaction with every person before him, he had absolutely no limitations on himself whatsoever. He had perfect power to control any dynamic in front of him. And he had perfect knowledge of those who were right in front of him. And he never assessed anybody in front of him inaccurately. We should look at him. Should we not? I want to talk first this morning about the limitless power of Jesus. Now, there are so many texts. I could have listed just the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But I didn't think that would be a blessing to you, so I'm not going to put that up there. But there are so many texts for you to look at. Let me just remind you in regards to his power. There was no illness. There was no disability. There was no paralysis. There was no blindness. There was no demonic possession that that ever even once posed a challenge to his power. A lifetime of blindness evaporated before his power to heal. Another woman has 12 years of internal bleeding, and like that, it's gone. Another woman, 18 years with demonic deformity, bending her over, gone in an instant. Demonic possession that could only be measured with the unit of measurement of a Roman legion army. 6,000 demonic infantry soldiers in one man, gone with a word. These were entrenched situations and conditions in people's lives. They, they were perplexing issues. They were oppressions that were stubbornly fixed. They were of every kind from physical to spiritual. And every single one of them was not a challenge to Jesus Christ at all. And distance. Distance posed no problem for Jesus. He did not have to be present to heal. With just an assuring word from Jesus, a father could start walking home and discover that his son was healed at the very hour that Jesus spoke. Distance was no obstacle to Jesus' power. And the forces and the power of nature were no obstacle to him who made them. Terrified fishermen in a boat in the midst of a raging storm saw wind and waves obey Jesus Christ. Wine comes out of water. Food comes out of a little boy's lunch. Jesus Christ never faced anything that tested the limits of his power. Listen, not even death could draw a line in the sand and claim, well, his power can't cross over to us. His power easily crossed over into the realm of the dead. Nothing was off limits for Jesus Christ's power. And the exercise of his unlimited power, it only was ever coupled with mercy. 
and compassion and gentleness and love. Jesus never exercised his power from sinful anger. His power goes forth to heal and he calls the paralytic laying in front of him, son. That's so tender. He called the unclean, bleeding woman made clean who touched his garment, daughter. The exercise of his power made sinners actually want to come nearer to him. A woman comes near enough to to weep tears on his feet and then wipe them clean with her hair. People came and they fell before him humbled. They were loved by this powerful one. He never chided them from his position of power. He only encouraged them from his exercise of power toward them. He said things like, take courage. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, now why is this important to tell yourself in any trial and any conflict? What difference should this make? I want you to listen carefully. Conflict will reveal the throne in your heart. And it will reveal to you who wants power to control the disagreement or the conflict. And in the midst of conflict, you and I are positioned to make some really important choices. It's when you feel like you've lost control of what's going on. Now you need to make some important choices. Whose power to control this is impressive to you in that moment? Whose power to control do you want your teammate to feel the most in that moment of conflict? It is only helpful in conflict to pause and remember how, unlike Jesus, you And your teammate are. Listen, it doesn't matter who you partner with in marriage. It doesn't matter who you partner with by birth, who children God gives to you, parents God gives to you. It doesn't matter who you partner with for a ministry team in the church, by the church, for the church. You will face entrenched, perplexing, stubbornly fixed, annoying habits and predispositions in each other. And it always and can only appear that way from your power perspective. Because you are powerless. You can't change your teammate and you can't change even yourself. With your power, everything appears entrenched. With Jesus' power, nothing was entrenched. Ever. Never. Do you want your teammate to feel your power To control them, or do you want to remind both of you how every entrenched physical and spiritual malady anybody ever faced was no challenge for Jesus? I know what I want to hear. Let's talk about distance. When the difficult meeting ends and you both leave one another and distance grows between you both, oh my goodness, you can become increasingly anxious beyond belief because you have no control. You can't control how they are thinking about what you just said to them, and you can't control how they will talk about your conflict with others. You can't make them do or not do anything. And Jesus, listen, Jesus was never in that powerless position that you always sit in. He was never in that position. That's good news. So set your eyes on him in the conflict. Trust him with any distance you feel because distance 
never neutralized his power. There's a lot of hope. And how differently do we wield power and control that we think we have compared to the way that Jesus wielded his real power? In the midst of conflict, when we are tempted to control what is happening and we're clawing for control of the conversation, you know, I'm going to talk first, I'm going to keep talking, and I'm going to limit your input, and I'm going to talk last, I'm going to be the book, I'm controlling the conversation. When I'm, when I'm clawing for which evidence can be admitted into this courtroom of conflict, and listen, when we're doing that, mercy and love and gentleness are just not emanating from us. It's just not. When we express our power and our control in conflict, listen, our teammates don't want to be nearer to us. Our spouses don't want to be nearer to us. The one with all power to control everything is the one we want to look to. Lastly, in regards to Jesus' power, The storm on the sea is raging, and he's sleeping. And then he's just trying to calm down his terrified disciples. Desperate sinners are pressing in on him every single day, and he's not panicking. He's just pausing. Everything can stop. Who is it who just touched me? He just calmly, peacefully, he just wants to care for the one. Everything else could stop. This man of power was settled. He was never frazzled. Crowds have been listening to him for hours, and there's, there's no food for them now at the end of a long day, and Jesus isn't panicking. He's not freaking out. You see, what's the point in all of this? The one with all power to control everything in front of him was always steady, With that power. He was always centered with that power. He was never frantic, never panicky, never anxious, never fretful, never frazzled, never bewildered. He's at peace with his power because he's God. And we are just not designed by God to be the ones with power and control. We don't become more calm, we don't become more centered, we don't become more settled as we're clawing for power to control the conflict. Have you ever noticed how anxious you are as you try to control what you can't control? We lose our ability to stay centered. We become frantic, we become panicky, anxious, fretful, frazzled, bewildered. And when we express our power to control, peace doesn't just come out from us. We are just not like Jesus. He is God and we are not. And we just need to be okay with that. In your conflict, the throne of power will be revealed. And that is actually truly a grace from God to you in that moment because you need to to take a good hard look at the throne. You will see it clearly, both of you will, as you realize that you can't control each other. And the temptation in that moment will be strong to race each other to the throne to wield power to control what is happening. Just pause each other and remind each other of who is actually worthy to be on that throne with power. And that it's neither one of you. So that's the limitless power of Jesus 
Let's put our eyes next on the perfect knowledge of Jesus. And let's go to John chapter 9. You're like, is he ever going to open the Bible? I still believe in the Bible. I just want you to know that. John chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. Let's talk now about his perfect knowledge. Jesus had no limitations in regards to his knowledge of people in front of him. He had the ability when people were in front of him, when there was wrong thinking, when there were evil reasonings in people's minds, wrong assessments being made of what was going on, he knew it perfectly. And then on the other side, when there was good things going on in somebody's mind, he could see that too. He could see both of them. Let's start first and just think about some scenes in which Jesus knew that people had wrong thinking. Here's one of them, John chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. You know this. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, we've been, we've, I'm adding some paraphrase here. We, we've been assessing this. We've been, we've been watching this guy, and, and we put a lot of thought to it. And we're coming up with a couple of categories for this guy that he fits in. And so we're, we know what we know, and so here are the two categories that we're thinking. Um, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Disciples have assessed this blind man. Two categories exist for him, and Jesus says what? Wrong. Neither. Wrong on both accounts, guys. They categorized him wrongly twice. What they thought they knew as categories were actually not legitimate categories at all. Can you imagine asking the blind man, hey, which one of these two categories do you want to be in? He doesn't want to be in either of them. Because he's not in either of them. But this is what we do with each other. This is what we do to each other more than we should. We assess the situation and we think, oh yeah, I've got some categories that this is in. We're convinced of what we know to be the only option. How many times has your knowledge in situations like that after the fact been proven to be extremely limited or completely untrustworthy? It's happened to me more than I can count. Go to Matthew chapter 20. Let's look at the mother of James and John coming with a request. Matthew 20, verses 21 to 22. Matthew 20, 21 to 22. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. The mother of James and John, she made a request for positions of power for her sons. She knows what would be a good request to make. She thinks she knows where this needs to go. And Jesus' response is what? You have no idea what you're asking. And this is what disciples do. We trust what we know to be best for us. We trust that we believe we have a reasonable and justifiable request. And instead, our knowledge is going to be proven to have holes and gaps in it. Go, go to Luke chapter 11. Again, what we're looking at are times when Jesus is dealing with people in front of him, and there's a negative assessment. He, he knows the negative that is going on. Luke 11, verse 27. Luke 11, verse 27. This is great. 
Now it happened that while Jesus was saying these things, that one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, there's this woman sitting there and she is convinced. She just has, she has to just break into the silence or whatever is going on. She's got to raise her voice and say this. She's convinced. Here's what she says. Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. A mother in Israel is impressed by the teaching of Jesus that she has heard. She knows what needs to be said at that moment. There is a relationship with this fine young man that is worth noting. And everybody needs to hear it. She sees it. She's got it. It's this. Blessed is the mother relationship to this son. Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. What a blessing the birth mother is. What a blessing the birth mother has with this man. And Jesus says, "Um, actually not. On the contrary. He knows something different and better than what she thinks she knows. The most important relationship, the relationship with Jesus that is full of the greatest blessing is with those who what? who hear the word of God and do it. But this is what we do. We think we know the right stuff in what is before us and how humbling it would be in conflict to declare what you trust you know, only to hear your Savior say, "Um, on the contrary, actually not. Go back to Luke chapter 10, verse 40. Mary and Martha. Oh man, this is a good one. Mary and Martha, Luke 10, verse 40 to 42. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. And she came up to him and she said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the preparations alone? Then tell her to help me. Martha was on task. And from Martha's perspective, Mary was not where she needed to be. And so Martha takes control. She wants to be in control of Mary. And Jesus responds to her and he says, Mary, you are such a blessing to everybody in this house right now. No, he says, you're worried and bothered about so many things. Jesus simply was not in agreement with Martha's knowledge or her assessment of what was going on in front of her. Martha thought she was seeing the whole thing rightly, and she wasn't. And she was not a blessing to anybody around her, being so worried and so bothered. It wasn't going the way that she was convinced was right. Her view of Mary was 100% wrong. Martha's thinking, Mary should value what I value. Mary should do this the way that I believe it should go. Jesus... Don't you agree this should go the way that I think it should go? And this is what we unfortunately do with one another. We, we implicitly trust what we think is right. And if others would just uh, affirm our viewpoint, if, if even the Savior would just affirm my viewpoint, everything would be just be so much better. Jesus sees how worried and bothered we are with one another. By the way, how do you think unity right in that moment is going on between Martha and Mary? You think Mary wants to be with Martha? 
So those are the negative assessments. Not only did Jesus perfectly know wrong thinking that was in front of him, but let's look at some really encouraging things. Let's look at the, the times that he perfectly knew that right thinking and right responses were in front of him. Go to Luke 7, verses 2 to 10. This is the centurion who had a slave, but who was sick and about to die. That slave was. And the centurion says this about his view of authority and submission. Verse 6, now Jesus was going on his way, and he said, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I'm not good enough for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. You see, I, I, I am also a man placed under authority with soldiers, even under me. And I, I say to this one, go, and he goes. And I say to another one, come, and he comes. And I say to my slave, do this, and he does it. And after hearing the centurion's way of thinking about authority and submission, he says out loud with whatever crowd was around him, he says this. This is Jesus' assessment of what he sees. I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. Hey, everybody, I bump into a thousand, thousands upon thousands of you every single day. I'm watching everything. I have perfect assessment of the nation of Israel. And I just want you all to know right now that I, in all of Israel, I have not found anybody with faith like this. That's what he sees. And there wasn't one disciple sitting there going, yep, that's exactly what I was thinking. Listen, here's good news for you. Jesus sees and he knows the good thinking that you have and he knows the right responses that you have and your teammate has. It does not escape him. If it mattered enough to Jesus to point it out on earth when he saw it, it is not any less significant to him now when he sees right thinking and faith on your team. Is that enough for you to know that he sees it? Go to Mark chapter 2, verse 5. Mark 2, verse 5. The friend, is paralyzed friend is being dropped down into the house right in front of Jesus. The friends bring their paralyzed friend. They tear out the ceiling. They lower him down before Jesus. And what does Jesus see perfectly? What does he know perfectly? Verse 5. And Jesus seeing their faith. This, this is faith. Hey, everybody in the house, faith right here. This is faith being exercised right in front of me. And he says to the one child, so tender. And he also knows what nobody else in the room can see. He knows what the paralyzed friend needs to hear most. And it's not this. Um, son, you know you're going to have to pay for that, right? Now, that's not what the boy needs to hear or the man needs to hear. What the paralyzed man needed, evidently, that no one else in the room could see, was the assurance that his sins were forgiven. But Jesus knew perfectly what the man before him needed most. Listen, guys, Jesus knows what your wife, your spouse, he knows what your kids, your parents, he knows what your teammates in ministry need, and he knows it perfectly. You see what you see, and you know what you think you know in the moment. Listen, just don't make an equal sign between that and what Jesus sees, because they're not equal. So, with limitless power and perfect knowledge to 
in, of everybody who's in front of him. That means, lastly, that Jesus had perfect assessments of everyone before him. And I want to take you to one last text. Let's go to John chapter 2. I think this is probably the key verse, really, that could override and kind of sit as an umbrella verse or passage over all of this. Jesus had perfect assessment of everyone before him. Verse 23, these are the early days of his ministry when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw his signs which he was doing. That's amazing. I'm sure his disciples had an opinion about those early days, what they thought they were looking at. This guy that we're following, he's doing miracles everywhere. And look at all the people who are believing in him. I'm sure they made an assessment of what was going on. All the crowd is making an assessment of Jesus. Many are saying that they believe him. But what are we told about Jesus and the way he assessed the people in front of him? Verse 24, but Jesus, in contrast on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. Jesus made his own assessment. Jesus had no interest in entrusting himself to the way that people around him thought of him. The way that they thought they knew him. The way they thought they were believing in him. In his mind, that's just not trustworthy. Why? Verse 24, for he knew all men. What he knew about them was trustworthy. He knew all men. Now get this, Jesus also didn't need to turn to his disciples in those early days in Jerusalem and say, hey, uh, fellas, huddle up. I have a question. Um, I need some help. I'm, I'm trying to connect some dots here with what I see going on. How do you guys read what is going on in Jerusalem right now? What, what's your take on what's happening here with this crowd? Verse 25, and because he had no need that anyone bear witness concerning men, man in front of him. He had no use for that. Why? Again, because he himself knew what was in man. His own knowledge of what he sees was sufficient. He wasn't relying on anybody else. His perfect knowledge. So with his limitless power, he can control anything going on, and anything entrenched, entrenched can become unentrenched like that. And with his perfect knowledge, everything is on the table that he knows, clear, laying bare before him. And that meant his assessments of people in front of him were perfect assessments every time, all the time, and he alone has power to control and change you and your teammates. Now, I'm gonna, I want to say something that might be jarring for us, but I think it's, it's helpful. In regards to your team dynamics, your ministry partnerships, your relationships, listen carefully. Jesus today, guys, is still not entrusting himself to what you or I think. He is still not entrusting himself to what you think you know that's going on in your team dynamic and conflict because he knows all men. Still. 
And Jesus is not benefiting from my take, my testimony on the relationships that I'm in, my take on the cause of the problem that's before me, and my take on the cure for the conflict, your take on what you think it is that you see right in front of you. Listen, your testimony and my testimony are not necessary for him. He is not benefiting from what you think you see and what I think I see because he knows everything. Have we forgotten him so quickly? Have we become so puffed up and overinflated ourselves that we've actually blocked each other's view of the sun? Let's talk about some implications from this as we wrap up. What is, what is the goal in becoming more aware of Jesus' limitless power to control and change everything? His perfect knowledge and his perfect ability to assess your team dynamic better than you. What's the goal? Let me tell you what the goal is not. Here's what you can't say. Well, because Jesus knows everything perfectly and he has perfect contra- uh, power to control my team. And because I don't, I'm not taking a step toward my partner at all. You can't say that. That's not the point. What is the goal? The goal is this, that as I step forward and toward my teammate, I'm going to be less impressed with what it is I think I know. What's the goal in conflict? I want less confidence in me and what I think I know. There is someone present in my team dynamic who perfectly knows what has unfolded and it is laying bare in his sight and it is neither one of us in the conflict, in the moment. The goal is to stop trying to control it. To stop trying to control the information, to stop trying to control the evidence, the data, the conversation, my teammate. The goal is to submit my limited assessments of what I think is going on under Christ's perfect assessment to the extent that if my assessment is proven to be wrong, I just gladly want to abandon it. I don't want to prop up my wrong assessment and have it stand next to Jesus. And he says, on the contrary, I don't want that. This changes how we approach one another. It doesn't mean that we stop approaching one another. We often just trouble our conflict unnecessarily by forgetting the perfections of God and Jesus Christ and thinking far more highly of ourselves than we ought. It's so sad, but we do it. Let me take you back to the scenario that I started with. Let's say you have to go to your teammate. You have to address an area of life that you're concerned about in him now, let's, let's see if we can take some of these things and change that whole scenario. That was a disaster at the beginning. What if your teammate heard from you early on as you're coming to him, the, the spirit of something like this? Um, brother, I, I'm greatly limited in what I think I've seen and what I, what I think I know about you and this area of your life. And I'm sure I, I feel it out of proportion, without proper dimensions and weight to what it actually is in your life, I'm, I'm sure. And, and if you start to feel in this conversation like I'm overstating it, w- would you please just tell me? I, I feel right now like I'm such a liability to you as I try to point this out to you. And I, I know myself too well, brother. There, are, there may be times in our conversation when, when I might even try to control you. 
And I might even try to control this conversation. Would you, would you help me to be aware of that if you feel that way? And I know this too, brother. I know Jesus loves you. And I know he sees you perfectly. He, he sees all of your right thinking and all of your good responses in this conflict or in this trial we're in. He is more impressive for us both to focus on as we talk about this area of your life. He is powerful over every area of our sanctification. And and when he wields his power for change, it is always coupled with mercy. It's always coupled with love. We we have lots of hope here, brother, as we we talk. And, And so, brother, my goal throughout this conversation and at the end is that you would be far more aware of Jesus than me. And you can add a thousand more things to that. What if your teammate heard the spirit of something like that? Let's turn it on its head and put it on the other side. Your teammate's coming to you to address an area of your life. The, the meeting is set. The phone call is set. The, it, it's, it's, it's about to happen. What if your teammate heard you say as he's coming to sit down? Or the spirit of this? Brother, I just want you to know that before you start, I know that I struggle to even be able to assess my own heart accurately. I'm still so deceived by my own heart. And so I need you. And I know that God has sent you to come to me. And you know what? I know this about you too, brother. I know you're not omniscient in this area of my life. And you know what? Neither am I. And I know this too, that that you probably won't be able to measure the proper dimensions of this area of my life, you know, how pervasive it is or not. But I know that you're God's choice instrument to come and and help me see it. And so I, I just want you to know, brother, that in this conversation, knowing your limitations, I'm not going to put the burden on you to get it right in order for me to listen to you. Because I know you can only see this in part. Therefore, I know you can only describe it in part and incompletely. You're the only kind of servant of Christ that can be sent to me from God. And so I will listen to you to try to understand what you're addressing in my life. And I'm going to labor hard to find the nugget or the nuggets that God wants me to consider. And friend, when we are done, I want you to walk away more aware of Jesus Christ than me. But I also, when you walk away, I want you to believe that you've truly been heard. The perfections of Jesus. His unlimited power to control his disciples and to remove every entrenched issue in a life. His unimpeded, perfect knowledge of you and me. He's not missing anything. And his impressive ability to perfectly assess our conflict, our disagreements. He sees every single one of your assessments of what's going on. And he's not benefiting from it. He's just not. And we need to be okay with that. And what a huge difference the perfections of Jesus can make on our ministry team dynamics for our marriages, for our 
parenting relationships. We need to be wise and recognize that we're either building unity or we are rebuilding it. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, what I know is how quick and easy it is for me to lose sight of you in the midst of disagreement and conflict. It's so sad. And so quickly and so easily, I can think more highly of myself than I ought to in disagreement and conflict. And I oftentimes end up blocking my wife's view of God and my kids' view of God, my friends' view of God. And Lord, we just lament that and we confess that to you and we pray that you would forgive us, that you would grant us a thorough repentance. And Lord, rather than fight against the flaws of the only kind of servants that you can send to us, rather than fight against those flaws, would you help us to embrace your plan in sending a flawed instrument to us, a non-God partner? Help us to embrace that. Help them to be successful in our lives. We need them to be successful in our lives, faithful in our lives as you send them. So, Lord, we need lots of wisdom. And we need lots of humility. Today, Lord, would you give us wisdom in each relationship before us to lay down our pride, to lay down our arrogance, and to clothe ourselves in humility so that we can either build unity well or we can rebuild unity wisely. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.